Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I am your host, Natalie Pearson. Following the 2014 coup in Thailand, in which the military overthrew the caretaker government after six months of political crisis, both Time Magazine and the New York Times ran articles suggesting that the coup could lead to ethnic tensions and potentially civil war between the Isan people of northeastern Thailand and the central Thai government. But this civil war never eventuated. There were genuine tensions between the Isan people and the Thai state, so why did it never escalate into full-blown conflict as predicted? Is this a sign that Thailand's centuries-long effort to integrate diverse ethnic identities has been a success? and what cautionary tales might apply. To answer these questions, I am joined by Jacob Ricks, Associate Professor of Political Science in the School of Social Sciences at Singapore Management University. Jake researches development topics as well as nationalism and ethnicity in Southeast Asia, with a focus on Thailand and Indonesia. Recently, he has been studying the identity of the Isan people of northeastern Thailand, and he's co-author of the forthcoming book, Ethnicity and Politics in Southeast Asia with Amy Liu, and has also published in journals including World Development, Political Behaviour, Pacific Affairs, and Journal of Contemporary Asia. Jake, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. We're here to talk about ethnic integration in Thailand, but before we get started, may I ask you a few broader questions about the concept of ethnicity? Sure. Okay, so you're approaching ethnic integration, which is what we're talking about today, from a political science perspective. But of course, there are other disciplines that also think about ethnicity, such as anthropology. What particular insights does Polsai bring when thinking about ethnicity? Yeah, so across the social sciences, we kind of study the same things. We just use slightly different methods and different theories and different approaches. So I would think that political science as compared to anthropology. Anthropology will often look at it in the minute detail. So ethnographic work, looking very closely at a village or very closely at a group of people, and then talking about broader theories from that. Political science will often take an opposite approach, looking at the broader scale political situation. So looking at ethnic groups as they work as a unit within a political system, or as they mobilize, or as a political system can shape ethnic groups. So I don't think the approach is terribly different, and we can definitely speak to each other across the disciplines, and I think we should, but there are slightly different approaches. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Our guests on SEAC Stories are from a diverse range of disciplines. And because we're a multidisciplinary centre, I think it's always useful to think about how different disciplines might approach the same research topic. So thank you for explaining that. So the term ethnicity and ethnic groups, for me, conjures ideas of similarities and differences, kind of this binary, these differences between people and between people and the state. Is this a useful way of thinking about ethnic identity? So I like to think about ethnicity in terms of creating boundaries, because ethnicity and our ideas about who we are and who other people are, it's all about boundary making. So ethnic groups create boundaries, and our definitions of where our ethnic group is and where another person's ethnic group is, it's all about creating boundaries and identifying our in-group 
and an out group. And so that's how I look at it. And that's how many of the social science scholars tend to approach it as well. So is it just the ethnic group themselves making those boundaries or can those boundaries also be applied from external forces? That's a really good question. And Thailand's an excellent case of this. Quite often, the ethnic group themselves define their group boundaries, but also outsiders can define group boundaries. And the Thai state has been involved in defining group boundaries and defining where groups begin and where groups end for a long period of time. Now, the Thai state isn't alone in this. Others do this as well, but it's an excellent example. So for example, if we look back at the Isan people, Isan people are located geographically in northeastern Thailand. And for centuries, they had been a separate entity from the Siamese state or the Thai state, which was a kingdom. So we were talking about small kingdoms. And the Thai state for a long period of time had defined them as Lao. But during the early 1900s, the Thai state went through a process of redefining them no longer as Lao, but as Isan, which would bring them into the Thai state. Can you talk us through the process by which they came to be within Thailand's national borders rather than the obvious one would be within Lao borders? It's a really good question because actually within Laos today, there are only about 3.4 million Lao people. But if we look at Thailand and we look at the number of Lao speakers, native Lao speakers in Thailand, we're looking at numbers around 15 to 18 million people. So there are technically more Lao speakers outside of Laos than there are inside of Laos. And how did they become part of the Thai state? Well, all of that came about due to the mapping process. Now, Siam, as it was called then, Siam wasn't colonized, wasn't technically colonized, but the French in French Indochina were trying to define their boundaries. And they went through a mapping process, which included some force and included sailing warships up the Chao Phraya River and threatening the Grand Palace in 1893, if I'm recalling my date correctly. They basically forced Siam to give up territorial claims to the lands that we now today call Laos. Now, whether or not the Siamese actually controlled that land before is really big question because the way that kingdoms in Southeast Asia used to be set up, they weren't necessarily set up in nation states the way we think of them today. And so independent small kingdoms would often existing in these areas. But the French colonial power, as well as the British colonial power, helped map Siam, as Tong Chai Winichagun's work says. They basically helped define the boundaries of Siam and what would later become called Thailand. And as they defined those boundaries, they weren't really thinking necessarily about the people who lived there. They were thinking more about the territory, the geographic territory. And so as they decided on the basically the Mekong River serving as the boundary between French Indochina and Siam, they left a large number of Lao people on what became northeastern Thailand. The Isan people or the presence of the Isan people in the modern day Thai state is part of this historical colonial or quasi-colonial legacy. Are there other ethnic groups within Thailand? I mean, obviously there are, but can you describe to us some of those different ethnic groups other than the Isan across the nation? 
Yeah, it's a great question. So if you look at like the CIA World Factbook, you're going to see that they say Thailand has 97.5% ethnic Thai. There's an effort by the Thai state to gloss over ethnic differences around Thailand. But if we look at languages that are spoken in Thailand and linguistic differences, we actually see a fair amount of variation. So off some data sources that we have, basically we're looking at about 40% of people in Thailand speak Central Thai as their native tongue. About 30% of people in Thailand speak Isan as their native tongue, or Isan or Lao. We have another 10% that speak Kammuang, which is the language spoken in northern Thailand. And we have another almost 10% that speak a southern dialect of Thai. We also have another 3 or 4% that speak Khmer, and another 3% that speak Malay. And then we also have other groups, such as Chinese speakers and smaller ethnic groups in Thailand. So you have this huge amount of ethnic and also linguistic diversity in Thailand. How has the modern state gone about shaping identities within the country to maintain cohesiveness? So earlier I talked about ethnic boundary making. How do you define what an ethnicity is? And one of the tools that the Thai state has used is defining what it is to be Thai. And during the early 1900s, the Thai state really struggled with this, really tried to figure out how would they define being Thai. And what they did was they created a very expansive definition of what it could be to be Thai. And they allowed for people to assimilate. Now, not everyone could assimilate, but they allowed for many people to assimilate. And they basically set up the rule that if you spoke Thai, And if you adopted Thai cultural practices, then you could become Thai. And then they offered a number of incentives for people to do that, as well as disincentives for people to not become Thai. So basically punishments, exclusions. If you weren't seen as Thai, you would be punished by the state. You would maybe not be able to access state services. You would not be granted citizenship rights, things like that. And so there was an incentive for people to adopt Thai language as well as adopt Thai cultural practices. And we see this in the Chinese community. We see this in the Isan community. And we also see it in the northern Thai community, the Kammuang, the people who were part of the kingdom that was around Chiang Mai. Jake, this is so interesting. So this concept of Thainess or how you can claim or access Thai identity, would it be possible for someone like me, fifth generation white Australian, if I learnt Thai language and adopted Thai cultural practices to consider myself Thai? So that's a little bit more difficult than the, say, an Isan person or a Lao person becoming Thai, especially today, because these boundaries have somewhat solidified versus how they were, say, 50 years ago. Still, Thai people are very welcoming and there's a very open idea, open atmosphere to people becoming Thai. And again, it is through adopting Thai cultural practices, speaking Thai. Now, as a white person, it would actually be fairly hard because when we think about ethnicity, there are different symbols or markers of ethnicity. And some of them are harder to breach than others. So phenotype 
or our appearance, our physical characteristics, is actually one that's a lot harder to breach than, say, learning a language, even though learning a language and being fluent in a language is already quite difficult. And the Thai state, well, they defined basically language, cultural practices, religion, and they also kind of defined the phenotype, which was acceptable. And in their acceptable phenotypes, they didn't really ever expand it to include Caucasians. That boundary may be a little too hard to cross. Let me just put on the record, I have no intention of claiming Thai identity, but it's an interesting hypothetical and interesting to see just how far you can push that concept of Thai-ness. So with this very inclusive approach that the Thai state has taken, has it had sort of a flattening effect on separatist movements? We don't actually see a broad scale ethnic mobilization throughout much of Thailand. We do see it among the three Malay provinces in southern Thailand. But in general, say northeastern Thailand, northern Thailand, as well as southern Thailand, those big linguistic groups that are somewhat separate from the central Thai language, we don't see large scale mobilization for those groups that would be considered like separatism. And when you go to northeastern Thailand and you talk with people, none of them really would ever consider, well, I won't say none. But most people would never consider separating from Thailand and becoming Lao. In fact, Isan people and most Thai people, in fact, are very proud of their Thai national identity. In international surveys, respondents in Thailand are among the highest levels for reporting pride in national identity. So numbers-wise, we're looking at 95% or higher numbers of people who say they're proud or very proud of their national identity. So would it be fair to say that they've been able to retain their ethnic distinctiveness while at the same time finding a place for themselves within the nation state? So it's a little bit hard to answer because, yes, Isan people have adopted an Isan identity. They've adopted a Northeastern identity, a regional identity. But the question is, well, do they still consider themselves Lao, which would be the moniker that used to be used, or do they prefer to refer to themselves as Isan by a regional modifier? And in my own research, I found that most people, and this is based off of surveys that I've done in the region, most people prefer to call themselves Isan rather than call themselves Lao. Now, that's when they're dealing with an outsider. When they're dealing with insiders, with co-ethnics, quite often they do refer to themselves as Lao. So there's an interesting distinction there. When you're talking with an outsider, do you use a regional modifier? But when you're talking with other insiders, you call yourselves Lao. What do you attribute that to? How can you explain that? The way that I think about that is mostly about the way that the Thai state treats them and central Thais treat them. So there is a socially negative aspect or punishment for being called Lao. In the social hierarchy in Thai languages, in Thai ethnicities, Lao is actually considered quite low. But Isan is considered much more acceptable because being Isan is Thai. And so when people get asked, are you Lao, by an outsider, they don't necessarily want to say, yes, I'm Lao, because of that social stigma. 
But with other people who speak Isan, then there's a feeling of trust, a feeling of acceptance. And so they're much more willing to say, yeah, we're Lao. And so the Isan people or ethnic identities in general in Thailand, are they allowed to organize politically? So under the military government, not really. And this has a long history. So going back into the post-World War II era, when we saw a brief period of democracy before some military interventions, we did see movements, especially among Isan members of parliament, towards creating regional identities, regional groupings, regional parties. Those leaders, some of them were arrested, they were killed while in custody, others disappeared, and then a few others just stepped out of politics, right, because of military intervention. And so basically there has been a strong pressure by the state for people not to identify regionally and not to identify with an alternative ethnic group. Um, you mentioned Southern Thailand earlier, and I know your research has been focusing more on the Isan, but are you able to talk about the situation in Southern Thailand? Is it perhaps an example of where Thailand's efforts to integrate ethnic groups has not been successful? Definitely among the three Southern provinces, Batani, Naratiwat and Yala, in those three southern provinces, the Thai state has basically failed in their efforts to integrate those people as Thai. And part of that comes from a couple things, right? If we think about ethnic boundary making, we can think about certain characteristics or certain signals that we give off as to our ethnicity. And I already mentioned phenotype, language is another one, religion is another one. And if we look at the people of southern Thailand, those people in, in those three provinces I mentioned, they don't really share very many characteristics with the approved Thai state identity. And most specifically, they have their own language, which is significantly different from Thai, and they have a religious difference. Now, they may share some phenotypical closeness with other southern Thais, but the language and the religion have become their identifying marks, their ethnic boundaries that the group identifies with. And the Thai state has not been successful, has not been very successful at getting them to give up their language and switch over fully to Thai or to assimilate their religion into more of a Thai approved style approach. So setting aside that example, generally speaking, Thailand's approach to ethnic integration has been successful from a Thai perspective at least. Are there lessons that other Southeast Asian nations might take from these integration efforts? So when we say successful, I want to also caution that this has come at a great cost. So regional groups in Thailand have been excluded from the political system. They've been excluded from the education system. They've been excluded from economic development as well. And so there has been a great cost to this ethnic flattening, this assimilation of people into Thainess. And these people have paid a great cost. So when we say success, we want to be sure that we're saying success from the Thai state's perspective not necessarily the people's perspective. Now, what kind of lessons might be learned? Well, one is just the power of the state, the power of a determined state to assimilate people. 
The other lesson that might also be somewhat more useful than just using state coercion is the creation of a national identity which is flexible enough to accommodate alternative ethnic groups. So rather than focus on a national identity which is exclusive, which is focused on a single ethnic group where the boundaries are closed, the Thai state has decided to focus on a Thai identity which does have flexible boundaries. So Chinese ethnics were able to integrate and become Thai. Lao people from northeastern Thailand were able to become Thai. People from the Kamung speaking area, northern Thailand, were able to become Thai. And so this flexibility has been very beneficial towards the Thai state's ability to create a national identity that is welcoming to these groups. Wonderful. Jacob, thank you so much for joining us on SEAC Stories. It's been a really interesting discussion and we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.